You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You want the best for your kids, best education, best health care, even the best clothes. But do you ever wonder, am I setting the best example when it comes to money? How much easier would your life have been if you knew just a little bit more about money? Give your kids that advantage so that they are always one step ahead of the world. Hey, I'm Eric Yard, host of Raising Financial Freedom Podcast, where we help you do just that. Come learn about money management, debt, budgeting, and common mistakes to avoid so you can pass these lessons on to your kids. You can give your children the gift of being financially savvy so they can thrive in the world with ease. Visit financialfreedom.com to tune into the latest episodes where you will get practical advice and immerse your heart in in-depth conversation about all things money and kids. I'm telling you, you won't help but take out your pen and paper. See you there. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at the Yale School of Management, where his work focuses on the intersection of public finance, behavioral economics, health economics, and industrial organization. He is also the co-founder of the San Francisco tech startup Vila, which helps e-commerce vendors optimize their businesses. Holding a PhD in economics from MIT, much of his recent research has focused on the healthcare industry and health insurance. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Jason Epelik. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start off, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research interests. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I'm a professor of economics at the Yale School of Management. Uh, Very broadly, my research focuses on trying to understand the quality of consumer choices, how we can uh, measure what they're trying to get from those choices, uh, whether they're choosing well, and how we can design markets and institutions to help them choose better. Okay, um, so I wanted to start off today by talking about two related papers you recently wrote, uh, co-wrote, sorry, titled When Less is More, Improving Choices in Health Insurance Markets and What Do Consumers Consider Before They Choose? Identification from Asymmetric Demand Responses. In these papers, you discussed how and why people often end up choosing healthcare plans, which cost them more, sometimes significantly so, whilst providing little to no advantages. So as I understand it, you laid out three solutions that would attempt to correct these discrepancies, which I want to go through and understand one by one, Um, starting with the idea of removing, quote, unquote, bad plans from the marketplace. So could you please tell us a bit more about this this idea and how it could help? Yeah, absolutely. So so let me... Let me start a little bit with some findings from from earlier papers, which is uh, that when people choose health plans, this is an incredibly hard thing to do. If you imagine, first, just consider the financial consequences of choosing health plans. If people want to understand what the consequences of different plans will be, they have to solve this problem that requires them to first think about what are all of the possible medical conditions that they might develop given uh, whatever existing medical conditions they have in each of those cases, then to look at all the different attributes of the different plans, including the deductibles and the cost sharing for all the different drugs and different formularies, and to ask in light of the deductibles and the cost sharing and out-of-pocket maxes, how might the financial consequences differ between these plans? The bottom line is that without decision support tools, and we can talk in a moment about the things that have been developed, but without help, 
this is a virtually impossible problem. And it's certainly, when I've chosen health plans for myself, lacking these decision support tools, it's certainly not a problem that I've, that it has been, you know, worth my time to solve in any meaningful sense. And I don't think it's worth anyone's time. And what our earlier work suggests is, you know, as a result of this, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, especially when it comes to the financial aspects of plans, people seem to leave a substantial amount of money on the table. So that it's often the case that by choosing alternative plans, they could pay less on average and potentially have better risk protection. So in that sense, some the plans they choose are just dominated by alternative plans. And sometimes the amounts of money they can save are substantial in the, in the thousands of dollars per year. So the question that we're asking in the less is more paper is how can we help improve the quality of their financial choices. And uh, I'll talk in a moment about another recent paper I have where we where we look more at uh, the health consequences of, of the different health plans they choose. But, so uh, you mentioned one way that we can help improve the quality of choices, which is just by uh, restricting which plans are available. Uh, in the setting we were studying, this is uh, school districts in Oregon. What actually happened was there were between a nine and 13 plans uh, that were that could potentially be offered to beneficiaries. But in each school district, there was a benefits manager who had the discretion to say, look, if you want, you can only pick a subset of these plans. You can say pick three plans. And if you select those three, then beneficiaries have to choose from amongst those three. So why might it be better to circumscribe the choice set in this way? Uh, the reason in practice, we find that actually it saves a lot of money. In practice, we find that when the district benefit managers restrict choice sets, uh, people end up spending less money overall and getting equally good, if not better, uh, protection against catastrophic risk. So how does that happen? Well, we know that people are making all kinds of mistakes. One of the things that we document in this paper is that people use a lot of really simple heuristics when it comes to choosing plans. So for example, if the, the plans happen to be numbered, from OMED, uh, so <laughs> different plans from different insurers are numbered, let's say, from three to nine. And if you were previously in plan six and plan six ex exits the market, you're way more likely to choose plans five or seven than other plans, even if it's the case that plans five and seven don't especially resemble plan six, right? So people are just latching on to whatever they can to try to figure out how to choose these plans. In light of that, if there are plans that are pretty good for everyone, well, those plans end up, it's a pretty good idea to include them, uh, to make them available to consumers. If there are plans that are good for 5% of people and really bad for 95% of people, well, if everyone were choosing the perfect plan for them, it would be fine to include these plans. But given the fact that people are making all kinds of mistakes and using all kinds of heuristics and everything, if you include in the choice set plans that are bad for most people, but good for a couple of people, Lots of people will choose those plans, uh, even though the plans are unsuitable for them, and that leads to worse outcomes. So our first recommendation is, look, it is possible to, uh, and we see this in practice in Oregon, it is possible to help people choose better by circumscribing the choice set. An important point is you're not randomly removing plans. We're not saying, ah, we're going to take 13 plans and randomly pick three of them to offer people. You're doing that in an intelligent way. So the district benefits managers who, who restrict the choice set to three plans are choosing three plans that are pretty good for just about everyone. And this prevents people from choosing plans that are especially unsuitable for them on the financial dimension. 
So as I understand it, um, there would still be a certain minority subset of people for whom the bad plans um, would indeed be the best option. However, uh, under this this proposal, they would no longer be visible. So is there some sort of way in which we can systematically remove these plans from the marketplace for most consumers whilst allowing them to remain visible um, to consumers for whom it's likely to be a viable option? So for example, if we know that a certain healthcare plan is likely only to be the best likely to only be the best choice for people with a certain rare condition. Is there a way in which we can enable people with said condition to find it? Um, or is removing typically bad plans from the marketplace altogether the only option under the current system? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting idea. I, I, I'm un, unsure how well this would work in practice. So, so the kind of thing that one might try to do is say, okay, suppose there are some plans that we think are bad for most people, but, you know, there's some circumstances where you might want to choose them. We could say things like, oh, if we were talking about the ACA, for example, that the paper you mentioned was not ACA plans, they were employer-provided plans, but think about the Affordable Care Act exchanges. We could say something like, oh, look, you know, on the website, we're only going to list certain plans. And then there's going to be, if you want to go through a lot of effort uh, to find other plans in some hidden portion of the website, like you're still allowed to choose them. I mean, there's questions also about um, the what economists call the general equilibrium consequences of this. So, so if we were to do that uh, with those plans, so a lot of the plans now that I'm calling, quote, bad plans are able to persist precisely because lots of people mistakenly choose those plans. So if it were the case that only the people who benefited from those plans chose those plans, it may end up that they would need to substantially raise the premiums and then even those people would no longer benefit from those plans. So the short answer is it's a bit of a it's a bit of a complex question, but it is worth investigating suggestions along the lines of what you're making. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, the next solution you talk about is decision support, um, wherein people have a significant level of assistance administered via a real agent uh, and choosing their plans. So could you tell us a bit more about this solution and how it could be beneficial? Yeah. So I think there's a, a stylized fact in behavioral economics, which is that when we give people information, people often respond less to information than we might have hoped. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about an undergraduate I had who was writing uh, their senior thesis about helping people choose their Medicare Advantage plans. And one of the things they did was they interviewed um, a bunch of senior citizens where they said, look, um, we think there's this alternative plan you could choose and you'll save, you know, $250 a year if you choose that alternative plan. And typically people would say back to them something like, well, you know, I'm worried because I know I get mail order drugs in my current plan. If I switch to this alternative plan, could I still get mail order drugs? And the undergrad would investigate, go back and be like, yes, actually you can. And they'd be like, oh, I'm worried. Are there prior authorization requirements or step therapy that might make it hard for my doctor to prescribe what I need? And the undergrad checks and goes back. Anyway, they iterate four or five times. And then the undergrad would say, we checked everything. You can do everything the same. And you save $250. Do you want to do it? And what people typically say is, well, I still don't want to switch because my current plan is fine, even if it's a little more expensive. There could just be all these things that I'm not thinking of, things that might get worse if I switch to an alternative plan that saves me money. And this is the problem you have whenever you try to provide people with information. What we find in practice is there's now been a number of experiments that economists have run with different decision support tools that it's hard to change people's behavior. Like typically fewer than 10% of people uh, end up switching plans when you give them information. There's uh, some recent work um, by... uh, 
Ben Handel, uh, John Kolstad, John Gruber, that looks at what happens if we give people information and also have them talk to a broker. Uh, so basically talk to a broker about the information that's being provided. That seems to lead to somewhat larger effects, but it's still the case that the vast majority of people don't switch, which is why we consider options like, oh, should we prune the choice set in various ways? Because we find that, you know, information People, it's hard to convince people that you have given them all the relevant information because people know that this is a complicated choice and they know that there's lots of things that they could easily be overlooking. So although expert assistance in such a manner would undoubtedly help people avoid bad decisions made on the basis of um, unfounded fears or incomplete information, um, I, will, I wanted to see if you had any idea of the practicality of actually implementing such a solution. So obviously, um, implementing a system in which millions of people had access to timely support from qualified experts um, would be quite costly. So on the other hand, however, it's possible that the aggregate benefit to consumers um, could warrant such an investment. Uh, I'm not sure if access to the decision program, um, decision support program that you mentioned would have some kind of cost um, involved to the consumer. But either way, um, are the benefits of this um, likely to outweigh the cost, do you think? So I think usually, yes. So um, programs like this, so not with the broker consulting, but, but for example, like Medicare Part D provides an online calculator that uh, anyone who qualifies for Medicare Part D can go and enter their drugs and it'll tell you information about the cost to alternative plans. Surveys suggest that the vast majority of people don't use this calculator. Many of them are not even aware that it exists. Uh, this is an issue that we ran into in Oregon as well. In, this, in the same setting where we uh, investigated, hey, what happens when the district benefits managers vary the number of plans? We also did an experiment involving a decision support tool. And what we found the first year was in order to use the decision support tool, you had to create a new login different from the username and password you use to choose your plan. And something like 7% of people bothered to create the new login. Then the next year, we made the decision support tool mandatory. So basically, you had to, uh, and with a single login. So you use the same login you used to choose the plan, and you had to at least start the decision support tool before you made your plan choice, but still a lot of people started doing it and then they exited the decision support tool before they finished. Um, I have, there's a number of reasons I think that is that, that are a, li a little bit in the weeds, but the things like, oh, you know, we had to ask people how much their employer contributes towards premiums and maybe they didn't know that number and, you know, it was hard for them to get. So the, the short answer, uh, or I guess not too short to answer, but, but so an answer to your question is there's a number of logistical challenges in setting up these decision support tools. I think there's solvable logistical challenges. I think when you evaluate the potential benefits of such systems, including having broker consulting as well built on top of it, I think usually they would pass a cost benefit test. But if you ask sort of, given the total amount of money left on the table by people not making better choices, uh, if you uh, implemented this, how much of those savings would be achieved by a program like this? You're going to be talking about, you know, 10 to 15 percent of the savings, not 80 to 90 percent of the savings. OK, um, so before I, I move on to the last solution, I wanted to get a bit of an estimate um, regarding the 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 broader scale of, of this problem, um, the, the problem of consumers, um, you know, choosing plans that may not be optimal for them. Um, Price-wise, yeah. So, so let, yeah. Let me. Keep, well, I, I want to frame the question even more broadly because so there's an issue of people not choosing the right plans financially. There's an issue of people not choosing the right plans because of the health consequences, 
And then there's an even more fundamental issue, which is what incentives does this give to the insurers? So you can ask this question, why is it that we design healthcare markets the way that we do in the United States? Why is it that we have competition among private plans instead of, you know, the government provides a single health insurance option for everyone? And there's a number of different trade-offs and I'm not going to talk about all the possible benefits or costs of one of the other systems. But if you ask economists, what is the single most important reason to have a market rather than to have, you know, government provision? The single most important reason is innovation. What we would like plans to be incentivized to do is to figure out how to provide people with better better care and more cost-effective care. Okay, we would like plans in the long run to say, oh, if we can invest billions of dollars to figure out how to direct consumers to doctors and hospitals that will yield better outcomes at lower costs, it is worth us making those investments. If we can figure out how to invest in providing doctors with decision support so that their electronic medical record automatically runs all kinds of algorithms to recommend what the doctor should do to different patients, it's worth investing billions of dollars to get that to work. Why would insurers want to do that? Why would insurers want to try to make people healthier by investing a lot of money? They would want to do that if consumers could tell which plans are likely to make them healthy so that if the plan made a massive investment in doing that, they would get rewarded because everyone would say, ah, you know, United invested X billion dollars in rolling out this incredibly ingenious thing that'll send me to doctors who actually make me healthy. Right. But there is a huge problem. And the problem we've talked about so far is the tip of the iceberg. The problem we've talked about so far is people can identify plans that are financially good. But that's the tip of the iceberg of the more general issue is people also can identify plans that will make them healthy, which means the plans don't have any incentive to make these investments that will make people healthy. So the fundamental thing that we would like markets for health insurance to do breaks down because plans have too little incentive to try to invest in quality. Okay, and that's the kind of thing that all of these different strategies, and we could talk about um, other uh, suggestions that I've made in subsequent papers, are, are designed to deal with. So it's not just a matter, this, the stakes of the problem we're talking about are large. We're talking about people leave hundreds of dollars a year on the table for prescription drug insurance and thousands of dollars a year on the table for general medical insurance when it comes to just the financial consequences. But I think the stakes are even larger for the health consequences, for people currently leave tens of thousands of dollars worth of health improvements on the table by not choosing the best plans. And because insurers don't have incentives to figure out how to make people healthier, that could be every year trillions of dollars that are left on the table by sort of lost innovation due to insurers having the wrong incentives, due to insurers wanting to just, you know, they want to just select people who are profitable and get those people to enroll in insurance plans instead of figuring out how to make people healthier. Right. Um, and so that gives me a good sense of the, the scale of the problem that we're dealing with here. It's not like, you know, 90 percent of consumers are picking the right plan for them, but it's, it's a minority of people who are maybe picking, you know, a plan that's not ideal. Um, it's it's a problem that's affecting uh, the, the whole market a lot more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of I think it gets to the heart of this question of what is the right way to organize healthcare? Should we use markets? Why are we using markets? And what do we hope that those markets will achieve? Right. And I think there is this this thing that markets could be really good at, which is promoting innovation and especially promoting quality innovation. But I think that in health insurance markets, we don't get that because what we 
find um, in some of my other works. And now I'm talking about uh, a paper with uh, Peter Hull, Amanda Stark, and Mauricio Caceres Bravo, a recent paper. We find not only can people not choose the plans that are financially good for them, that's what we found in the Oregon paper and restricting the choice that helps with that. People also can't choose the plans that will make them healthier. They're basically unable to distinguish which plans make them healthy and don't. And that means that the market is just not serving this fundamental purpose that we would hope it would serve. Right. Um, and so there's there's also this this question um, and you talked about the the, um, the innovation and the market side of um, healthcare and bring the cost down. But um, I wanted to point to the other side as well um, of this and look at health insurance to the actual healthcare providers. Um, so one of the one of the issues um, with the American um, you know healthcare industry um, a bit more broadly is the, the the pricing seems to have gone quite out of hand recently, um, increasing significantly more um, than, than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Um, and I think um, oftentimes uh, a lot of people point to this problem that the people receiving the care uh, are not the ones who are paying for it. Um, in, in other words, um, it's like if you go to a grocery store and, and you know, there's some they say they're going to send the bill to someone else. You know, instead of buying three bananas, you might buy 12 or, but you know, buying a gallon of milk, you might buy five. Um, yeah. And so because when you go to the doctor, um, the doctor sends the bill to your insurance provider, especially obviously after your um, after you meet your deductible. Um, there's there's no one in this the system who um, has an incentive to keep the price down. You know, the doctors might charge five times as much for um, you know what it costs to do a certain procedure, and, and you know the consumer wouldn't be affected because they're not the ones who are paying. So, is, is the system um, fundamentally broken in a sense, um, or is is there something I'm not seeing? Yeah, so the, the, there's quite a lot we could say about what you just said. So, so uh, let me start with this point that this is what insurance is supposed to do. Okay, so the the very the classical theory of insurance that economists have is: look, if you give people health insurance, there's good news and bad news. The good news is they get protection against risk. The bad news is that there's something called moral hazard, and moral hazard it basically means: look, if someone else is paying, there are some services where you might not get that much value from them, but you're going to opt to pay a lot for them anyway, because you're not the one who's actually footing the bill. It's the insurance company that's footing the bill. Now, we have estimates of how big these moral hazard effects are. And the first answer is they're real, it seems. So we have uh, several actually large randomized experiments that have been conducted. The RAND experiment in the late uh, 1970s, something called the Oregon Medicaid experiment, where people were effectively randomized in a lottery to have Medicaid in Oregon uh, around 2008. Um, and then we have a number of other papers that use credible, what economists call natural experiments to estimate this. And basically we find, you know, if you go from being, uh, uh, if you go from paying the full cost yourself or having a large deductible to having an insurer pay the cost of medical care, you consume about 30% more. Okay, so there is evidence of moral hazard. Now there's a, there's a couple of things to say uh, in light of your introduction. So first, you know, that 30%, you might say, well, that's just the cost of, the cost of insurance. It's not obviously this. That's not. It doesn't mean the system is broken because people get a huge amount of value from having health insurance. So if the option was don't have health insurance and pay out of pocket, or have health insurance and someone else pays, health insurance is probably better. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that the current system is optimal. There's um, a number of major deficiencies in the current system. Um, if you ask why, um, just as a quick aside, like if you say, why have healthcare costs increased so much over time? Most of that increase is not because of what we're talking about. Most of that increase is not 
uh, due to moral hazard, at least um, the what I'm going to call the partial equilibrium impact of, of moral hazard. Most of the increase in healthcare costs has been due to new technologies. Okay, so if you ask why is healthcare so expensive now relative to 30 years ago, it's because we have a bunch of new medical technologies that do all kinds of different stuff. Okay, if you ask why is healthcare so expensive in the United States relative to other countries, I also think that is mostly not about moral hazard. In fact, in other countries, you mostly have um, more generous uh, health insurance coverage. People pay even less out of pocket. So it's not really, it's not like every problem in healthcare is attributable to moral hazard. Now, there is one problem in healthcare, which is that we see large amounts of price dispersion for similar services. We see that, you know, you'll look at arthroscopic knee surgery in one hospital in a city and in another hospital will be 10 times as much, right? And what is leading to all that price dispersion? Is it because someone else is paying the bill? Well, Partly, it also has to do with market power. It also has to do with, you know, certain hospitals, people really want to go to those hospitals. I think there are things we could do uh, to try to mitigate that price dispersion. It raises similar issues, by the way, to what we were talking about when we talked about uh, giving people information about uh, the cost of insurance funds, because you can give people information about, and insurers recently have started to try to do this. They'll say, hey, if you go to this provider, they're going to cost way more. And so we'll even give you a rebate if you go to the less expensive provider. But people alone don't want to make that decision. Because if you're getting surgery, you want to go to the surgeon that your primary care physician referred you to, even if it costs a little bit more. So I think the right way to implement these systems that get people to shop around more is not just for the insurers to incentivize consumers, but basically for the insurers to work with both the doctor and the consumer to be like, look, here is the cost of the different options. The doctor knows something about quality. The doctor can assess in light of the quality which consumer they want to refer people to. And I think that's more likely to get to get some traction in this dimension. But it, there's much more we could say about, about the, the causes of price dispersion and what kinds of things we could do about them. Um, my, my, so, so <laughs> this is, again, a, a long-winded answer to your, your, your question. But, but I, the, the first point to note is that it is true that with insurance, someone else is putting the bill. That is not necessarily a problem. However, in the current system, the degree of price dispersion for similar services that don't seem to vary, that doesn't seem to track quality, probably is a problem. And there are things we could do to mitigate that. Right. Um, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so the last solution you propose is defaults for people who stand to save a substantial amount of money. Um, you recommend this, especially for inactive consumers who perhaps enroll in a plan and don't bother reevaluating from year to year to ensure it's still the best choice for them. So could you tell us a bit about your plan for smart defaults and how it might be advantageous to as opposed to leaving uh, customers to their own devices? Yeah, absolutely. I do want to talk about that. And I would say, by the way, um, I, I broached earlier the broader question of people not choosing plans that make them healthy. And so there's a number of additional policies we could talk about, uh, including information provision, including directly rewarding plans uh, that enroll healthier people, uh, healthier people that, I, that I've uh, written a little bit about in other settings. But, but what, um, on, the, on the point you made about smart defaults. So uh, again, I think there's this, I, I mentioned the general point in behavioral economics that it's hard to change behavior with information. And that, of course, raises the question, how in the world can we change people's behavior? And there is, there is one thing that very, very robustly predicts behavior and, uh, and gives a way to change behavior. And that is that people 
tend to want to do the same stuff they were doing before. They tend to want to be inattentive to do whatever is the lowest energy thing that they can do. So if they go to the supermarket, if you ask what yogurt are they going to buy, they're probably going to buy the yogurt that they bought last time. If you ask what health plan are they going to choose, they're probably going to choose the health plan they bought last they got last time. Or if you just default them into another health plan, they'll probably just stick with that health plan, right? Because they're probably, most people are like me. They might get, oh, they get a lot of mail, but they don't check all that mail. They don't bother every year investing a huge amount of time to figure out what plan they should choose. They're just going to do whatever happens automatically. So if we default people into alternative plans, the good news is they might end up in plans that are more suitable for them. Now, of course, this can uh, backfire because people might really like something about their existing plan. They might really, they would, might be really upset and rightly so if we defaulted them into a new plan and suddenly they couldn't see their provider anymore. They had to go to a different hospital and there was a discontinuity in their care that might actually impact their health. So what we would want to do then is to set up, if we did this smart default system type thing, what we would want to do is to identify cases where people are not going to be um, more restricted in the networks they see. And in particular, the people are still going to be able to go to the providers they like. It's just that we will automatically default them into plans that will save them money unless they choose to opt out of those plans. And what we recommend in the paper is doing this for people who stand to save a lot of money. So, so if you're going to save $15 by doing this, there's other things that could go wrong. Like we can't rule out that you might end up having to you know, the way that you, you might have to enter your credit card information in a new website or something like there might be small hassle costs. So if we're talking about saving $15, it's probably not worth the energy to do that. But if we're talking about, you know, saving $1,000 a year, it's probably worthwhile to say, okay, we're going to default someone into this plan where they can see the same providers. They're going to save $1,000 a year unless they choose to opt out. And if they opt out, of course, they can remain in their existing plan. So finally, I wanted to ask you about the policy and, and political side of this. Obviously, actions such as removing bad plans and defaulting inactive uh, customers may hurt um, healthcare providers for whom a, a lack of perfect information among consumers is likely a, a source of revenue. Um, any attempt to pass such resolutions that would hurt healthcare providers is bottom line would draw massive amounts of lobbying um, in an attempt to stifle such bills. So Dr. Abelok, would the effect of these solutions inevitably be the transfer of surplus to customers at the expense of healthcare providers, or is there some kind of deadweight loss that would be eliminated so that the hit isn't absorbed entirely by, by healthcare providers? I'm just trying to understand, you know, the yeah. economics behind this. Yeah, exactly. It's a very good question. So, so first of all, in what sense would the pie be bigger from better choices? And there's a number of respects in which the pie, so so one element of better choices, you're right, might just be that it's transferring money from insurance companies to consumers. But another element is if you have a better matching between consumers and plans, that can actually make the pie bigger for everyone because people get the, if you ask, what are the efficiency consequences of choosing healthcare plans from a risk protection, uh, from a financial perspective, the trade-off is between risk protection and moral hazard and how much value people get from risk protection. So if you have uh, better matching, what you're really saying is that like the net value that people get from risk protection over moral hazard, given the preferences, is larger in certain plans. There's also the element I mentioned earlier about certain plans are better for making certain types of beneficiaries healthy. So better matching there, again, can grow the size of the pie. Now, so I think that's a very interesting question that you asked about the efficiency versus the distribution. 
What I would say also, though, is I think the politics of healthcare are extremely complicated and don't always perfectly track. Um, like it's it's too sanguine of you to say, ah, if there's uh, if it, if you're going to improve efficiency, then then the the politics will work out, or or vice versa. Like I think it's actually very very difficult. I think people are generally too confident about their ability to uh, to predict what will pass muster politically because it often depends on really idiosyncratic things. It often depends on like, oh, if there's a couple of congressmen who are sort of the pivotal votes and, you know, what are the random interests that they campaigned on in their, in their last election? It's certainly true that there are parties that potentially will gain and lose from these different proposals. So for example, the insurance plans that were really profitable only because people were confused are going to lose. There's other insurance plans that actually a lot more people should be choosing. Those plans will gain. There's providers, uh, whether providers will gain or lose from reforming insurance plans is complicated because, you know, it depends how the concentration of insurance plans changes and their negotiating power vis-a-vis providers changes. Frankly, I actually think that providers probably don't have a great sense of whether they would gain or lose from these proposals because these are really complex general equilibrium things where even the the people like me who who just model and study these things for a living can only conjecture about about what the balance of of those forces will be if we were to implement these policies. So so the short answer is I think we should identify the the policies that we think will improve welfare. I think we should push for them. I think in different contexts and at different times the political resistance that you encounter is often surprising. And then this is why, you know, politicians have an important job. There are there are people who learn to create coalitions that can overcome that resistance. And that is a really important and socially, socially valuable thing. And but I would say I, I don't I think economists sometimes constrain their thought too much on the basis of what they think is politically viable when it's actually very, very hard to know what is politically viable given the complexity of the problem. Well, um, I think that wraps up the questions that I have for you today. Um, once again, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you, you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.